Well, I feel really bad that I'm the only reason you had church tonight. Boy, I tell you, that's brutal. Reminds me of the time I was preaching in Texas, and they didn't have any special music that night. And so the pastor, he said, well, Brother Gatch, we have nothing special tonight, so you come. (laughs) But I'm glad you're here, and uh, thank you for uh, this morning and your reception to the Word of God. I, you know, as a preacher, I just thank the Lord for people who come with a heart ready to hear and and to do what God says. And that really is revival. Revival is when you hear the truth and you respond to it in a way that is uh, pleasing and honoring to the Lord. And so thank you for being in your place, even on this Father's Day. And I know it is a, a great day to be together with family and, and do some special things. And I hope you've had a wonderful day uh, today. Let's go to Acts chapter 11. The book of Acts chapter 11 and in some ways, I, I'm going to continue a little bit of a theme that we, we saw this morning, but in a little different uh, passage, obviously, and uh, different situation. But I hope that it will be helpful to you tonight from the Word of God. Acts chapter 11, and we're going to pick up in verse 22 and go down to verse 26. Acts chapter 11, and starting with verse 22. The Bible says, Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem. And they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch. What had come to their ears at Jerusalem was that up in Antioch there was a great revival taking place among the believers there. In Jerusalem the church had been scattered through persecution and many of these that were scattered abroad went to Antioch. And a church was established there. But as word came back of this great growth and and, uh, people being added to that church, the disciples, they wondered, well, is this genuine? Is this real? Sure sounds like something pretty amazing is happening. So they sent Barnabas to check it out, if you please. So he comes to Antioch. In verse 23, who, when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. So Barnabas confirms the fact that this is a great work of God, that revival is taking place here, that this is real, uh, that there's something very special and unique taking place here in this city of Antioch. So what does he do? Verse 25, then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Little boy climbed up into the barber's chair and the barber uh, wanted to make him feel right at home, tried to make a little conversation with him as he threw the apron around his neck. And he said, uh, tell me, young man, what do you want to be when you get big? Who do you want to be like? And the little boy kind of scowled. He said, ain't nobody I want to be like. That's a pretty sad expression, isn't it? The pedestals of leadership are being vacated today. Now, it's easier to follow than to lead. I think all of us would admit that. It's easier to find a leader and just follow. Leadership has some risks involved. 
leadership, as we saw even in Moses' life this morning, uh, has a tendency to, to expose some of our failures at times, exposes our weaknesses. And so oftentimes people will kind of uh, shrink back from leadership because of that exposure of, of, of weakness or failure. Uh, leadership uh, calls attention sometimes to uh, a, a, an attack. Some people don't like leadership, and so there's perhaps an attack upon leaders. And so uh, we tend to, to say, well, I'm just not going to step out. I'm not, you know, as a parent, I'm not going to tell my kids what to do. Or, you know, in the church, I'm not going to force my, my beliefs on somebody else. Or in the community, you know, I'm not going to get too pushy with what I believe. It's a lot easier to do paperwork than it is people work. It's a lot easier to shrink away from serving people. But you know, at the same time, we lament the fact that leaders are becoming very scarce. We look at the political arena and we wonder, is there anybody that just loves America and is a, is a statesman and believes in our Constitution that would run for office? It just seems like, you know, just about anybody can can rise to the Senate or the House or uh, even become president, and you're, and, and you're just kind of scratching your head. Don't we have better leaders somewhere in America than these who seem to do nothing but just kind of exist and spend money and argue about things? We look at ministry, of course, and we see that leadership in our churches is getting older. And we sometimes wonder, well, where are, where are the young people to take their place? Where are the young missionaries? And where are the young pastors? And where are the young people who are, are going to serve the Lord? And, and may I suggest that perhaps the pedestals of leadership are vacant. We look at our homes and, and we say, boy, parents today just don't seem to understand what it takes to raise kids. They just seem to kind of let their kids do whatever they want. And it just seems like nobody really controls their children and, and brings them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And we kind of scratch our heads as we look at the landscape of the home today and we see the deficiencies in it. But again, may I suggest that the pedestals of leadership are being vacated. Does anybody want to be like you? Who do your children want to be like? Are you on that list? Who do the children in this church want to be like? Would they think of you? Wow, I want to be like him. I want to be like her. Who do the new Christians, when they get saved, who's the older Christian they want to emulate? Who's the person that they say, boy, I want to be faithful like that. I want to be used of God like that. Maybe people today, especially young people, are emulating the wrong heroes because the spiritual pedestals of leadership are vacant. Can I encourage you tonight, whatever your role in life, whether as a dad or whether as a mom, whether as a church member, whether as a staff person, whatever, whatever your role tends to be, find an empty pedestal. And begin to lead. Now, leadership is an action, not a position. 
Barnabas has no position in the church at Jerusalem. He's, he's not one of the apostles that's leading the church in the early part of Acts. He's, he's not one of the deacons, one of the seven that's chosen to assist the apostles. We, we see him back in chapters 3 and 4 as he sells a possession and, and brings uh, some of that money to the church and offers it to, to help with the ministry there. And, and uh, he's given uh, the, the uh, name Barnabas, the son of consolation. He's one that is recognized as, as one who uh, serves and one who likes to minister to others. But he has no position in the church. And yet all of a sudden we see him here in a, in a role of leadership. You may not have uh, an office that declares at the door, I am a leader. Uh, you may not have letterhead with your name on it saying, I am a leader in your life. Leadership is action. Leadership is taking action and influencing others. If you don't believe that, work in junior church one morning. You know, there's some real leaders in junior church, and nobody told them they could be the leader. But they can lead, sometimes in a wrong way, right? I mean, all of a sudden, that class clown, he's in control. Everybody's looking at him. Everybody's following him. Nobody told him he could lead. Nobody designated him to, to lead, but, but he just took some action. And, and on the contrary, the same is true in a positive way. And I want you to notice the, the threefold plan of action that Barnabas takes here as he stands on a pedestal of leadership before a man named Saul of Tarsus. The bridge, I believe, between Saul of Tarsus and the Apostle Paul is the pedestal upon which Barnabas stands. Saul of Tarsus, you study the book of Acts, he was ruthless. He, he was following the way of the law. He was trying to exterminate all those who were following Jesus Christ. And yet one day he's marvelously converted in Acts chapter 9. And yet the disciples, the Christians there, they were afraid of him. They weren't sure that he was genuine. They weren't sure that he was really real in his Christianity. And everybody kind of set him aside and more or less wrote him off. But, but here's Barnabas in this chapter who comes to the pedestal of leadership and bridges that gap between a man we know as Saul of Tarsus, who later we know as the Apostle Paul. And notice his threefold plan of action. First, he exercised the privilege of called leadership. He exercised the privilege of called leadership. Now, in verse 22... Paul, Barnabas goes to Antioch. He sees the work of God there. He was chosen by these apostles, perhaps back at Jerusalem, to, to go to this place. And God's obviously in it. As he comes there, he sees the grace of God. He's described as a man, uh, in verse 24, a good man, full of the Holy Ghost, full of faith, much like Stephen and others were described back in Acts chapter 6. He's, he's a man that, that uh, uh, is, is chosen by God, he's set apart by God, and he accepts this challenge of leadership. Don't ever get the idea that leadership is a bad thing. I, I know that there are leaders that allow leadership to go to their head, they become egoistical, they become proud, they become haughty, and we see that in politics, we see it in business, we see it sometimes in churches. We understand that not all leaders are good leaders. But don't let that stain your thinking when it comes to leadership. We need leadership in our life. 
God has ordained the family and he's placed the parents as the leadership in that home and, and the husband to be the head of the wife and, and so on. God has instituted government and, and there's leadership involved with that. He's instituted the church and, and there's a pastor and there are deacons. And, and so God has placed leadership in all of his institutions. It, not, it is not necessarily a sinful or prideful or egoistical thing to say, I'm going to be a leader. In Luke chapter 6 and verse 40, Jesus said, the disciple is not above his master. Well, that, that's, that makes sense. The employee is not above the employer. The servant is not above the boss. Okay, the servant is not above his master. But, he goes on to say, everyone that is perfect, and that word perfect means fully trained, will be as his master. So the servant is not above the master, but when that servant is trained in a complete and full way, that servant then can take leadership. And we see that sometimes dad will say to the children, now you obey your mother today, right? He's investing his leadership over those children to his wife or, or perhaps at work. A boss might say, now I'm going to be gone for a couple of days and she's in charge, and uh, she has my authority. She has the decision-making power. In other words, they're transferring that leadership. And, and, and that's what Jesus was saying here to his disciples. I'm training you. I'm, I'm putting my life into yours. I'm equipping you so that when I'm gone, you can do greater works than these. So leadership is not necessarily a sinful thing or a wicked thing. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, 16, Wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me. He said in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, follow me even as I also follow Christ. Be followers of me even as I also follow Christ. Leadership. In Philippians 3 and verse 17, brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which walk so you have us for an example. In other words, many times we, we figure out what's right and wrong because we have an example in a mom or a dad. We have an example at church in the pastor or a deacon or a good Christian layman. We have an example that exhibits the living of the difference between right and wrong. And we're able to see the difference. We're able to see those that are living a wicked life in comparison to those who are living godly as a leader. Paul tells the Philippian church, those things which you have both learned and received and seen in me do. Again, he's emphasizing what you've seen in the leadership. That's what I want you to live. He tells the young people in 1 Timothy 4, let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example to the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Example, in Titus chapter 2, in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works. So God institutes this matter of leadership or a pattern, an example. And he wants us to grab that stage. He wants us to exercise that, that called leadership in our life. We need to grab the stage. God's given you influence over lost people, over saved people, over loved ones. Grab that stage. You don't have to have somebody give you the position. Take the influence that God has given to you. But not only does he exercise the privilege of called leadership, but notice secondly, he envisions the potential of consecrated lives. 
He envisions the potential of consecrated lives. When Barnabas sees what's going on here in Antioch, his first thought is, I got to go get Saul. Now again, that would not have been the thought of most people at that point. Because Saul, I mean, when he first got saved, he starts preaching. I mean, the moment he gets saved, he's baptized, and boy, he begins to preach the truth. And yet the churches were, they were like, whoa, wait a minute. This guy that killed my husband, that put some of our church members in jail, is coming to preach to us? No way. And they were leery, and rightfully so. And so God removes Saul for a while. He, he has some training to do in his life. And, and God kind of removes him from the scene a little bit, takes him to the backside of the desert, if you please. And he gets more training and so on. But now all of a sudden there's an opportunity here on the part of Barnabas. And he sees this great work at Antioch. He sees what God is doing. And whenever God is doing something, there is a need for help. And the first person Barnabas thinks about is Saul of Tarsus. And he heads to Tarsus to find him. By the way, Tarsus was a fairly large city. He probably didn't have his email address or his cell number. He had to go find him. But there's a diligent pursuit here as he envisions the potential of a consecrated life. Barnabas is thinking, you know what? If God could take... Saul of Tarsus' life and somehow harness that energy that he had to oppose Christianity and get it on the side of God, God could use that man. I was uh, listening to an interview years ago of Wayne Gretzky. Now, Wayne Gretzky was a great hockey player. In fact, his nickname was The Great One. He wrote in one of his books, I never should have been called The Great One. I should have been called The Mediocre One. He said, most nights I was more mediocre than I was great. But he, he kind of got the title, the great one. And I, I don't watch enough hockey to know how you qualify a great hockey player. But certainly, by all estimation, Wayne Gretzky would be somewhere near the top of the greatest of all time. And they were interviewing Mr. Gretzky. And, and the interviewer said, Wayne, how did you become great on the ice? What was the key to your success? What was the secret to you? being able to score and assist and, and, and defend as you did on the ice. What, what in, in one thought, what, what was the secret to it all? And Wayne Gretzky said this, is very profound. He said, I always skated to where the puck was going to be, not where it had already been. Now, I never played hockey, but, but that made sense to me. I did play a little football, and I remember when, when we would line up on defense, the coach, he would say, now, now when the play starts, you've got to go to where the play is going, not where it is now. In other words, if they're running an end sweep around the, around the right end, don't run to where the ball carrier is now. He's not going to be there when you get there. Go to where he's going, and when you get there, meet him and smack him. And I went to public school, there were a few other words in there too, but... The point, it, it made sense to me that, in other words, you've got to envision the potential. You know why some of us get frustrated with kids? You know why you get frustrated with your own kids? You're seeing them as kids. I, I, I walk into some churches and they'll say, oh, pray for me. I've got to do junior church today. Well, we'll pray for you, but don't have that attitude. Listen, you've got to, you, if you envision 
those children that ride a bus or come from a single parent home or, or those, those gangly junior hires and that's the way you have them in your mind, you're never going to be able to lead them. You're just going to babysit them where they are now. But if you can envision, listen, the next pastor of this church might be in junior church. The, the next great leader of our nation could be sitting in these pews tonight. We don't know. And so uh, what, 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 Paul, what Barnabas is doing here is he's envisioning the potential that, that, that Saul had. Do you see anything? That four-word question was asked by an aide of Dr. Howard Carter, a well-known British archaeologist who at the time had his head poked into an ancient Egyptian tomb. For six uninterrupted years, Carter had been digging. Endless trenches, tons of sand, debris, rocks, boulders everywhere. Mounds and mounds of worthless debris were all over the area and nothing for six years had been discovered. Nothing. Many others had dug in the Royal Valley and said there was nothing there to be discovered. Nothing to be found peering into the silent darkness. Howard Carter saw wooden animals, statues, chests, gilded chariots, carved cobras, boxes, vases, daggers, jewels, a throne, a wooden figure of the goddess Skemet, a hand-carved coffin of a teenage king. In his own words, in his diary... He saw strange animals, statutes, and gods, everywhere the glint of gold. It was, of course, the priceless tomb and treasures of King Tut, the greatest archaeological discovery up to that time in 1922. More than 3,000 objects in all, taking Carter 10 years to remove, catalog, and restore. Some days in his diary, he wrote one word, exquisite, incredible, elegant, magnificent. One day, he simply wrote, ah. All words used by Carter and his aide who had earlier asked, do you see anything? And sometimes as a parent, sometimes as a Christian, sometimes working in a situation with a new Christian or maybe some young people given to our, our influence, we wonder, I don't see anything. I, I, I'm not getting anywhere. I'm, I'm just kind of, you know, flapping my gums and they're not hearing it. But listen, we've got to envision the potential. We've all day sung about God's word and, and the power that it has to change lives. And we won't see that in a moment. We won't see that in a day or a week. Sometimes God has to use that precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. We've got to see that God wants to do something magnificent with those that he's put in our care. I was attending a basketball game. And my son was playing in high school and it was an away game and my wife was teaching at the time and, and just didn't feel up to going on that particular uh, night. It was about an hour away at this, at this school that 
I had never been to. It was a Christian school, but I didn't know anything about it. And, and I, I wanted her to go, but she just didn't feel uh, up to it. It was a Friday night, long week of teaching. She said, you just go. And I, I wanted to go. It was a, a night I was home and wanted to see the team play. And so I drove over to this school and and uh, they had a nice gym there, and I crawled up into those bleachers, kind of sat by myself, didn't really know anybody there except a few people from, from the school that, that I was, uh, you know, kind of associated with, and, and they were mostly down by the bench, and so I just sat up there to enjoy the game, and, and the game was an excellent game, back and forth, and kind of one, two-point lead back and forth, and finally, toward the end of the game, the team that John was playing on, they, they hit a basket, won the game, and it was, it was kind of one of those, you know, buzzer beater kind of things, and it was exciting. Of course, I was excited because they won, and most of the fans there were disappointed they lost, and, and so as they all began to file out of the gym, I thought, you know, I'm just going to I'm just kind of going to hang back. I don't want to mix with them. They're sad, I'm happy, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be in their face about it. And so I thought I'll just I'll just kind of hang back and maybe the team will come out in a little bit and they'll be going to McDonald's or something. Maybe I can tag along, you know. And so I just kind of sat there in the bleachers for a bit. So I was sitting there, most people were going out and exit to my left. But I noticed a lady, she was walking across the gym floor. She probably was about I don't know, in early 30s. And uh, she's walking in my direction. And there was nothing in my direction except me sitting up in these bleachers. But I, I didn't just focus on her. I, I thought, well, she's got some business over here. But she kept coming and finally walked up the kind of the stairway of the bleachers to where I was seated and got up to where I was. And I thought, well, she, she's here to see me. And I stood up and she said, uh, are you John Getch? And I said, uh, yeah, I, I believe I am. <laughs> she said, you don't know me. She said, but do you remember preaching a revival in Hartford, Wisconsin? Why? Well, I said, yes, ma'am. I, I think I preached a couple of revivals there uh, back, in the, back in the 70s or 80s, somewhere in there, at the First Baptist Church. She said, uh, I was there. One night. I said, well, tell me about it. She said, I was a, um, a student at the University of Wisconsin. She said, I was raised in a Christian home. My parents were believers, but they didn't live the Christian life. They, they lived one way at church, another way at home. And she said, I grew up under some hypocrisy as I saw it and just didn't, didn't connect with me. And, but I went because I had to. But she said, when I was 16, my, my youth pastor committed suicide. And she said, that was it for me. At that point, I said, you know what? I don't need God. I don't even think there is a God. Maybe there is, but there isn't a God for me. And so she said, I became an agnostic. And I graduated high school and went off to University of Wisconsin. And the first day, I was assigned a a dorm, got in my room, met my roommate, and she was a born-again Christian. And I thought, great. But she said she was a a good Christian in the sense that she didn't didn't try to pressure me, but she lived the Christian life. She, She read her Bible every morning. She'd sit in her bed and pray. She had a prayer list. She had a good testimony. She, she didn't drink. She didn't use drugs. She didn't mess around with guys. I mean, she, she just had a, a godly testimony. She wasn't perfect, but... And every once in a while, she would say something to me, and I'd just say, hey, I'm an agnostic. Don't mess with me. 
And she said she came in one, uh, one week and she had a flyer with your picture on it. And she said, hey, we're, we're having a revival at uh, First Baptist Church in Hartford. And she said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to every service. Now, Hartford's 80 miles from University of Wisconsin-Madison. She said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drive every night. And she said, I, I'd like you to go with me one night, help keep me awake. Well, she said, I felt sorry for her. I thought she's going to kill herself doing that. That's stupid. But she, she said, I, okay, I'll go with you Tuesday night. She said, I came to that meeting simply to keep my roommate awake. And, and she said, we walked into that little church and I, we sat down and, and you and the pastor came out a, a side door on the platform and you came in, you sat down and I looked at you and in my mind I said, look at that guy. Another hypocrite. I mean, give me a chance at least, okay? She said, I had no intention of listening to you. And she said, I didn't. I couldn't tell you what you praised, what Bible verses you used. I have no idea. But she said, you, you made a statement. In that message, you said, people will fail you. Churches may disappoint you. But God's word will never fail. And she said, the reason I heard that was because I knew it was two-thirds right. People had disappointed me, and the church had failed me. I didn't know about God. She said, we left the service, got in the car, drove 80 miles back to the campus, and my roommate never said anything. She, she never pressed me like, what did you think of that, or anything like that. She just, we had other conversation, but she didn't press me about the message. She said, Christmas break came, winter break came, and I went home. I live in the South. And she said, I went home, and it was time then after Christmas and New Year's to go back to Madison. And she said, I went up in the attic one day, and I was getting some sweaters and things I was going to bring back to campus because now the weather was cold, and I needed some more warmer clothing. And so she says, I was going through an old trunk that my mother put that stuff in, and I'm going through there pulling out some things I'm going to take back. And at the bottom of that trunk was my Bible that I had in junior high. She said, I remembered what you said. People disappoint you. Churches may fail you, but God's word will never fail. And she said, I don't know why, but I picked up that Bible and threw it in my suitcase. She said, I got back to campus, and because of flights and different things expense-wise, I got back two days before the semester started, and nobody was there. I mean, it was a ghost town. So here I am in my dorm. I have no car. I have no place to go. I... I'm just stuck in my room. I'm bored to tears. And she said, I, I pulled out that Bible. And she said, I started reading at Genesis chapter 1. She said, that was January the 15th. She said, Brother Getch, on February the 15th, I read the last verse in Revelation. She read through the entire Bible in a month. And when she got done reading that Bible, her roommate was sitting at a desk studying. Had never said anything during this process, just watched. And when she finished the last verse, she said, Can you show me how to get saved? She said, That night, February the 15th, I trusted Christ as my Savior. She said, I finished my freshman year at the UW, and then I transferred to Pillsbury Baptist Bible College in Owatonna, Minnesota, and graduated three years later, and I'm an elementary school teacher here at this school. You know why that girl got saved? 
because there was a roommate that said, you know what, there's potential here. She's claiming, I'm an agnostic, I don't want to talk about it, but that roommate, I may never meet her on this side of heaven, but that roommate decided, you know what, God can work in her life, and I'm going to model it, I'm going to pattern it, I'm going to live what I believe, I'm going to gently encourage, I'm going to pray. We may never always know what the product is going to be, but we can trust the process of living our lives as God would have us live. And then notice finally tonight, he exemplified the product of Christ's likeness. He exemplified the product. Whatever we, whatever God gives us to see in the life of our children, we need to live that. In other words, do you want your children to be honest? Well, I think any parent would say yes. I don't want them lying to me. I want to be honest. I don't want to be thieves. I need to be honest. Well, then model it. Live it. I want my children to work hard. I want them to have a good work ethic. All right, model it. I want my children to be faithful to church. All right, live it. I want my children to have a prayer life. I want them to know the Bible. I I want them to go to church. Whatever we see, maybe in your young people, you say, boy, Lord, I'd be happy if if they would be in your service, if they would be a missionary someday, or then, then go on a missions trip. Boy, I could see my son being a preacher one day. Then support the preacher. In other words, exemplify the product of Christ's likeness. Modeling the Christian life is wrapped, is wrapping truth in personhood. We've got to live it out. We've got to flesh it out. As I said this morning, we can't just say. We've got to do. The Bible says here in verse 26 that when he found him, when he found uh, Saul... He brought them to Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves together with the church and taught much people. I don't think Paul and Barnabas played golf for a year. I don't think they just sat around and and, and talked about theological discussions. I think Barnabas was brought into that system of of serving God, and he watched uh, uh, Barnabas as he was serving the Lord. He was being taught as they went. Because later, Timothy is told by Paul, another one of his protégés, he says, but thou hast fully known my doctrine. Now that's important. If you're going to be a preacher, you've got to know the Bible. You've got to know the doctrine. And Paul said, Timothy, you have fully known my doctrine. But he goes on in verse 10 to say, my manner of life, my purpose, my faith, my long-suffering, Charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions. In other words, it wasn't enough just to school Timothy in the Word of God and and, and send him off to Bible college where he could learn the Bible. But you see, Paul, he decides, Timothy, you've got to know the Bible, but take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. you've You've got to see the way I'm living. You've got to see my faith. You've got to see my charity. You've got to see my service. You've got to see my long suffering and patience exactly what Jesus said when he said, uh, uh, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. The word yoke there is a specific Greek word that, 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 that uh, 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 describes an eastern yoke. The eastern yoke always had a place for two. Now, you can have a yoke that you put on one animal and that one animal pulls a wagon or whatever. You can have a yoke of four or six or eight. But the eastern yoke was always a yoke for two. And Jesus said, 
take my yoke upon you. The beautiful thing about that is he's getting in that yoke with you. And he's saying, learn of me. I, I had a horse when I was a kid and I loved riding that horse. And, and uh, I, it, was, it was just a, a fun thing, you know, on the farm growing up to be able to ride horses. And, and uh, we, uh, we bred the horse and it had a colt. And of course, during that time, you can't ride the horse, you know, and about a month before and then a while after, while well, the colt was was nursing and so on. I couldn't ride the horse. And one day my dad said, uh, I think you can, I think you can ride, ride again. I, man, I was, I was excited. And uh, man, I, I started running to the, to the horse uh, pen there to get the saddle and all that going. And my dad said, now take the colt with you. I said, what? He said, yeah, take the colt. I said, dad, I don't take the colt. I mean, I want to, I want to gallop. I want to go, you know? He said, take the colt. Take a little rope, tie the colt, and, and just take the colt. Now, why? Well, because Dad knew that in time we were going to have to, we were gonna have to break that colt in order to ride her. And he wanted that colt to get used to our voice and get used to the commands and get used to the, to the conversation going on there. We were, we were training that young colt long before we ever threw a saddle on her back. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Get in this yoke. I'm going to pull with you. You're not going to pull alone. You can't pull alone. You can't do it on your own. But I'm getting in here with you. And learn of me. Watch me. Listen to me. Uh, 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 love me. Serve me. You know, I don't know that we need seminars on parenting as much as we need to just get in the yoke with the Lord Jesus Christ and love him and follow him. You know, sometimes I think, well, I need to read this book about how to raise kids, or I need, and I'm not against any of that. But you know what? We just need to fall in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's amazing when Jesus called the 12 in Mark chapter uh, 3, he called them to be with him. He didn't say, you know, come and follow me and I'll teach you how to preach. I'll, I'll teach you how to counsel people. I'll teach you how to do a miracle. No, he said, I want you to be with me. He called them to be with him. And, and we as parents and as leadership in the church and as we have this influence, maybe at work or in the community, we've got to, we've got to know Christ, love him, and, and, then, and then lead. Years ago, there was a famous New York diamond dealer. His name was Harry Winston. And Harry Winston had quite a collection of various rare diamonds. And one day he heard about a Dutch merchant that was looking for a particular rare stone. And he thought he had it. So he called him and he said, hey, I think I've got what you're looking for. Well, the merchant, he had been looking for a long time for this particular diamond. And so he flew to New York and a couple days later walked into that store. Winston assigned a salesman to show him the diamond. The salesman took him over to a counter and went in the back and got a locked box and brought it out and placed the blue velvet cloth on the glass counter and turned on a, a light and opened that box and pulled out this very unique and rare diamond. Placed it on that cloth under that light, and it sparkled, obviously. And the salesman began to describe all of the technical features of this particular stone. But within a few minutes, that Dutch merchant threw up his hand and said, no, it's not what I'm looking for. And he headed to the door. Well, Winston had been watching this from across the store. And he intercepted the man at the door and he said, uh, listen, 
Would you mind if I showed you that diamond again? I mean, you've come a long ways. You've spent a lot of money. You've been here but 15 minutes. Could I show you the stone again? Well, the merchant, he, he thought, okay. I mean, I'm here. Sure. So they walked back over to the counter, and uh, Winston took the box and, and, uh, from the salesman and placed it back on the counter, opened it up, turned the light back on, spread out the cloth, and took that diamond out and placed it again under that light. But this time, instead of talking about all of its rare, unique, and technical features, Harry Winston spoke of his own genuine love for this particular diamond. Within a few moments, the salesman changed his mind, bought the diamond. As he was waiting for it to be packaged, he looked at Winston. He said, now, why did I buy that from you? I had no trouble telling your salesman, no. Why did I buy it from you? And Winston said, my salesman's a good man. He knows a lot about diamonds. In fact, he knows a whole lot more than I do. And I pay him a lot of money for what he knows. But he said, I would pay him twice as much if I could give him something that I have and he lacks. He said, you see, my salesman knows diamonds, but I love them. Now, ladies and children, ladies and gentlemen, your children, your grandchildren, those under your influence, they know that you know God. They know you're at church tonight. It's just your DNA. It's your MO. It's who you are. But if we're going to influence them, they're going to have to see that we love them. That's what makes the difference. It's not that we can describe God and talk about all of his technical features. But do you love him? Do you serve him? Do you live for him? Take another step tonight toward that pedestal of leadership. Listen, if you have your ear to the ground, you're bent over all the time with your ear to the ground to try to figure out how this world is operating, how this culture thinks, and try to take all that and give it to the next generation, nobody's even going to see you. But if you climb up on the pedestal of God-given leadership that God has given you as a parent or as a Christian at work or as someone in this church, if you get up on that pedestal and you get your ear to God, the whole world will see you. And you can say like Paul, be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. There's some potential in your home. There's some potential in junior church. There's some potential in some of the newer Christians in your congregation. But if they're going to reach it, we have to take and exercise the privilege of leadership that we do so.